So what happens when you combine my insane curiosity with some of the world's most interesting people? You end up with incredible conversations full of stories, insights, and the defining moment that made them who they are today. This is The David Spizak Show. Welcome to the David Spizak Show. Listen, you regularly hear me say right off the bat, thank you for joining. Thanks for taking the time. And I'm confident that you're going to be really glad you did. But I'm going to overemphasize that today. And I do it confidently, very confidently, because the gentleman that you're going to be hearing from today is somebody that I have massive respect for as an operator as a business person, as a dealer, as somebody in our industry, but above and beyond as just a spectacular human being and just truly a leader for the entire retail auto industry. And I know that he may not want to wear that tag. I remember Charles Barkley famously after a a game being interviewed saying, hey, I never asked to be a role model. And Patrick, you maybe never asked to have that tag, but something tells me that inside your store, you know, from as a family guy, as a business guy, you probably wouldn't mind having that tag and taking ownership of it. Patrick Abad, thank you for joining. Patrick is the general manager of the one and only Beaver Toyota. It's in Cumming, Georgia. How, how far outside of Atlanta is that? 45 minutes to an hour? About 45 minutes. North. Well, 45 minutes on a normal day, but it could take you two and a half hours in Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the price of success. So please, everybody help me in welcoming Patrick. Patrick, thanks so much for taking the time to join. Thank you for having me, David. It's, a, it's an honor to be with you. You're very kind. So, so Patrick, you know, traditionally, when people hear your name, hear of you, hear of Beaver Toyota, your absolutely fantastic organization, most often I hear it associated with your just impressive used car operation impressive in terms of your ability to procure cars. Typically, whenever I've checked out your website, you may have in, in the low, uh, in the high 300s, but most oftentimes I'll see it at four, 450, maybe even more than that. And you've got dealers all over the country struggling to fill 50, 80, 100 spots on their lot. And so that's just mind blowing to them. And it is to me as well. And you, so oftentimes I hear people saying, man, I, you need to you need to learn about Beaver because Beaver just does an unbelievable job with used cars. They procure a ton of used cars from clients. They compete with the publics. They compete with other Toyota stores and they just consistently beat them all. And I think that's a really important part of a dealership operation to be sure. However, what I'm really most interested in learning from you today, if it's okay, is I want to take a step back from that knowing from my experience, you know, in our dealership, in our history, people always wanted to talk about the profit and I get it. That's the ultimate report card. You get it. I get it. But I always wanted to talk about the fact that we had less than 3% employee turnover because without that, all the other things that people were excited about wouldn't have happened. So I want to go there. I want to understand, you know, because it's more than just process, for example, or a used car director or a buyer. I want to know, how did you build, how did you establish the incredible culture, work culture, client culture, associate culture that you have at Beaver Toyota? And from your perspective, what has that meant in terms of the growth of your company? Mm. That's, those are the best questions that you could ask any good car dealer, right? Because we all know, you said it, the success comes, but that, that success doesn't come until you actually get that first part right. Everybody always wants to talk about, well, how do you build an acquisition team? And how do you sell X amount of used cars? Or to your point, right, from the store that you were in, how do you make that much money? But it literally starts and it's a cli- the problem is it's become a cliche in our business. It's all about the people. It's all about the people. But I think a lot of people don't actually understand what that means. And, and I don't want to call anybody out because that's not what this is about, but what it is. And, and I'll, I'll sum it up with one sentence. You just have to come through for people. Like I literally in leadership, I feel like if you want to uh, 
instill change, get change, make things better. It has to start with like this buy-in and we call it equity in, in our business, in our store. You build so much equity with people, David, when you need something, when you want to make a change, when you want to change a process or you want to try something new. We're so big into trying things new that we actually start with the culture side of it first, because you cannot get people bought into change. Nobody wants change, but they'll do it if they love you. And, and I think it starts with that equity piece. So I would say that the coming through for people has kind of been the secret to building the team here. And that's three different ways. You can do it financially. You can do it professionally. You can do it personally. If you take those three things and you look at your people and say, when you need me, I will be there. When you need them, they'll be there. Does that make sense? It does. And there's so much to learn from that and so much I can unpack from that. And I'll start with this. You know, it just reminded me of a very old man, oldest time expression that, you know, people won't care about you until you care about them. Right. And it, you could go way back to biblical, right? And do unto others as you want them to do unto you. So it's interesting. So oftentimes in any business, including dealerships, we may take the approach that, hey, I need a service advisor. I need a tech. I need a salesperson. I need this. I need a position. No, you need a person, right? You don't want a position. You're not looking for a person. You're looking for the person. And a person is anybody who can fog a mirror, who has the capacity to either do this job or could learn that job. The person, what you made me think of, is somebody who can absolutely on day one, run with the torch with that culture, protect, be another gatekeeper to protect the culture, the sanctity of that culture and the importance of it. And be somebody who can make a contribution positively on day one to the organization by no other, they don't need anything else, but their attitude, their outlook and how much they care, their compassion, their empathy, and their willingness to come through for the next person. Is that true? That is, I think it goes to the statement and we learn this through, we do a lot of the John Maxwell leadership as a group and we talk, and we always have that word, who are you being, right? And it's, we, you can literally relate that to every step of the day. Who are you being when you're engaging with the consumer? Who are you being when your team member needs help? Who are you being, being when your leadership needs you? Who are you being when nobody's watching? Who are you being at every single step of the way? I think that's what that makes me under, think about. It's like, man, throughout my day, I have this opportunity to be this person that is so good to people and so good to each other and so good to our consumers and so good to our employees. And I think that's before you act, before you speak, if you just say, who am I about to be? I think it could change the way you actually interact with everybody in your life. And that also just reminds me of the fact that, I mean, it's, you know, you hear about the term sometimes based on your interactions with a company or with a person, it sounds very authentic. And other times it, it reeks of marketing. And the term I'm thinking of is servant leadership, right? That's just thrown out there, servant leadership. But to your point, what does that mean? What does servant leadership mean? And you said earlier, coming through for somebody. Well, that means that I'm not living, going through my day, thinking about what everybody in this organization can do for me. I'm walking through my day, looking for the next person I can lift up up, the next person I can positively impact, the next person I can develop, the next person I could help get out of a slump. And I think that's such a transformative way of thinking about culture. The other thing that popped up in my brain is when you say, okay, there's three ways, right? I can help them professionally. I can help them personally, and I can help them financially. And you think about it in a lot of stores, you know, the financials, the obvious one. Well, wait a minute, time out. I am helping them financially. I give them a job. They get paid. And all the different levels of leader, that's like the bottom. I, they have a job. I give them that opportunity. And Yeah, they owe me. They got to deliver. Yes. And, and yes. I always say to leaders, you know, when's the last time you delivered? You know, when you interviewed that person, yeah, they said, I can do this. I can do that. You can count on me for here and you can count it here. I've rarely seen an interview where the person conducting the interview doesn't make commitments, doesn't make promises, doesn't set expectations. 
they don't always live up to those expectations. Oftentimes, we expect that person to make us look great or to do everything they're supposed to do, but we don't necessarily hold ourselves accountable. So the financial side, not surprisingly, you may have heard of Marcus Buckingham, perhaps he's a writer, right? Fantastic writer. I had the opportunity to meet him a couple of times and his books are, of course, he used to work for the uh, Gallup organization and people will say, oh yeah, we're serious about our culture. No, here's serious about culture. Here's serious. Here's an organization that invested a team of people over a 20 year period of time with a singular focus of wanting to understand the relationship between that association, the manager and why it's important. And they had some spectacular learnings out of that. And one of them is a series of 12 questions that I'll happy to I'll post on Patrick's on the show notes. If you go to davidspizak.com next week, you'll see show notes and I'll post these 12 questions available. But one of those questions is, does anybody in the organization really care about me as a person? Do I have a best friend in my organization? When's the last time somebody spoke to me about development? You know, have they done that in the last six months? And we're so hyper-focused, it seems, Patrick, understandably so, on cell cars, cell service, cell parts, CSI, whatever, that I don't know that gets the attention. Somehow you've managed to make certain that it not only gets attention, but it's never left the front burner. Where did that come from? Well, I want to go back to something you said real quick, because I think this is an important piece. You know, a lot of people say we have servant leadership and we care. Look at what I do for this guy and look what I do for this. But I always say, do we do for the bottom like we do for the top? I know that it, we'll use sales, for example. Everybody will bend over backwards for the guy selling 25 plus cars a month. But will you do the same for the guy who's selling eight? And maybe if you did, he wouldn't be an eight car guy. Right. And right. I, I mean, I mean, in personal, professional and financial, like what would we do for the 25 guy? And everybody says, yeah, but look what he does for the company. And I think that's really the wrong way to look at it. Backwards. If you flip it upside down and say, let's go work on this person, right? Like if the 25 car guy said, oh my gosh, I have to move and I'm moving him to my house tomorrow. You know that 25 guy, 25 managers would jump on the, in a truck to go help him move. But would they do that for the eight car guy? Mm. When you can answer yes, then you've done something with your culture. That's my opinion. Is I, that, uh, I was just speaking with John Meloshenko, who's just a great guy and he was a great leader for the Germain organization for years and years. And we were speaking about something similar. And and I said, you know, it's interesting when you leave a a position like that and, you know, all the people that you used to hear from when you were the COO of a large automotive dealer group, and then all of a sudden you're not that COO. I remember leaving AutoNation and I probably 80% of the people that would reach out to me on a weekly basis just evaporated. And They said, there's a great old quote. It goes like this. You find out who your real friends are when it's not convenient to be your friend. Now, it wasn't inconvenient to be, you know, my friend or certainly not with John's. But the convenience in those instances is, hey, you know, I'd like to sell you advertising. I'd like to sell you this. I'd like to sell you a new product. And all of a sudden that person doesn't have that position and the ability to help make that happen. People lose interest. And the reason I bring that up is I think what you just brought up is a incredibly powerful point again, because it's not convenient. We want to hang around. Oh, you want to hang around winners. Oh, we want to hang around the top dogs. And it's not convenient to hang out with that seven or eight car a month person. It's not easy. It's not simple. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes commitment. Ironically, it takes the same effort, work and commitment that we're asking that person to put in, right, Patrick? Exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think it's a missing piece. And I do think that if more people focused on that, we could actually not just make this industry better, but we make the world a better place. And tell me about culture. For me, anytime that any of us are able to accomplish a goal or objective, let's face it, it feels good. Mm -hmm. But most of us, I believe, get more joy from giving a gift to somebody than getting a gift from somebody. And along those lines, as wonderful as it is, 
to experience success or achievement, there's nothing better, nothing rivals watching a protege, watching somebody we trained, somebody we poured into personally and professionally achieve an objective they didn't ever think perhaps was even imaginable. I'm sure that you see that in your dealership and you've seen that over the years, right? Yeah, I mean, and the cool part is I, you, I can't pinpoint one or two because there have been so many, right? And they work, when people see that, I think the things, and here's, it's good and bad. I think that some of the successes that people are having now, it's coming so natural when you work really hard on your culture that what's happening here is not normal, but feels normal. Mm. When you're watching people grow, the things that are happening inside the dealership, it's a, it becomes this expectation, like people are going to grow and people are going to get better and people are going to, they're going to grow personally, financially and, and professionally. All that's happening right before us, but it's now become an expectation because where you used to celebrate the one or two guys, but now it's massive. We have 250 employees and they're all pretty darn good human beings. And they all are making a darn good living and they're all buying houses and having babies and all these great things that happen in life. And it's happening on a mass scale. And I think to your point earlier, that retention number, I mean, yours at, at your store at 3% was like, it's just unheard of, but it, it actually starts with having these wins as a company, as an organization, as people but not just how many cars did we sell and how many cars did we service, but the life wins, those life wins that, that I'm talking about that become the norm. And I think it makes it special and you don't even realize it sometimes. So what makes in your estimation, if somebody is committed, is passionate about ser truly serving the people that work for them, which sounds counterintuitive and it, is, but that's okay. Counter, counterintuitive, I've learned, is an incredibly powerful approach. As somebody's pouring into an associate like you have, your management team, what do you suppose is the differentiator from one person that receives, that really understands the gravity of it, what it means for them personally in their lives and in, in their career, and somebody else that receives the same thing, but it does, there's no combustion, there's no ignition. It doesn't seem to take the same way. You don't see the same outcome. What's the difference, do you suppose, in those two types of associates? I think each circumstance would have its own reasons why maybe that didn't work. I think a lot of times it could be the foundation of that individual, you know, what they grew up in. Mine, and I'll use this as an example, I've learned how I wanted to lead people through things that worked well for me when I was growing up in the car business and I had leadership to things that did not work well. I, I've taken the things that I've, as I grew up, I loved that about that person and the way they made me feel. And I hated that about that person and the way they made me feel. I think each generation should be doing it better than the generation above them. I agree. I think a lot of times that foundation is missing in some of the people and it's just a misconnection. You, you have somebody who, who leads and develops a certain way and that person just has never even, you're trying to start on level 10 and you haven't even touched level one yet. I think understanding that person, I think sometimes you just miss it. And I think sometimes you got to slow down so you can speed up the development of somebody. You gotta, un it's no different than the guest experience. We've worked so hard on that. Start where they are. We've heard that a million times, right? Same thing with development leadership. Understand where they are, what they've been through, and then you can actually start to develop people to skyrocket them. Patrick, do you buy into the fact that <clears throat> some of the greatest leaders in organizations, the movers and shakers, the ones who truly can have the power to transform uh, a work culture, a client culture, oftentimes may not have the title manager? I think a lot of times they don't have the title, title manager. Yeah. I think it's important if you truly are going to sustain that culture, that if their title is manager, that either they are good at it or they are surrounded by people that are good at it. Right. I think that's a really important piece. Not everybody's a great developer of leadership. Not everybody's a great poor, but if they're not, then they need to surround themselves with people that is. And I think that's, the missing piece sometimes. And because, you know, we've learned so much in the car business in my years and your years, right? 
you, you manage by those numbers and the financials. And I think, I, I just think you got to throw that out if you truly want to work on culture first, because having a culture first company will sustain those that we talked about it, but sustain the profits forever. But if you have those managers who just manage the dollars and cents, you're going to one day, it might not be now, but one day your company will rot from the inside out. And by that, you know, Jeff Bezos famously said a while back that he's, he foresees a time when Amazon is going to be overtaken and even potentially when Amazon will ultimately fail, that they will be no more. And it's hard to imagine, you know, when you look at a, a essentially a trillion dollar organization, but then I do research and you see that 45% of the companies that were on the S and P 500, five, you know, these are the 500 bellwether, you know, lighthouse companies out there on the stock exchange and 45% from 20 years ago aren't on there anymore. You read the book, good to great. And out of the thousands and thousands of companies out there, there was a whopping 13 or 15 that managed to break away from the pack and sustain it for 10, 12, 15 years. By the way, everybody, spoiler alert. So my question to you, because you just said something else that's really important, sustainability, profit, sustainability. We just went through a period of time where, I mean, for three years, I have so much profound respect for this industry, for dealers and for the associates in here. And I mean no disrespect, but I've called it the way it is for years and certainly not trying to get invited to anybody's pool party, nor am I likely to. But during those three years, come on, 95% plus of the upside that was realized over pre-pandemic net profit for any given dealership in this country was through external forces, not internal forces. Pandemic, PPP, ERC, vendors reducing costs, supply chain, you know, all of those things basically conspired to create record profitability, not one year, not two years, but three years. And at NADA last year in Dallas, I said, I made a statement that for the last three years, everybody's been a genius. Everybody's a genius. But my statement was, my quote was, I believe in 2023, the men's of society is going to lose an awful lot of members. And they did because things got complicated. They got hard. And it proves your point. External forces change, right? If we have to rely, whether a salesperson, manager, or dealership, if I have to rely on the manufacturer coming out with these insane 0% interest rates and 72 months and, you know, the economy blowing up and, you know, all of a sudden cash is everywhere or 3.2 trillion is dropped in from the government. You know, now everybody's making twice as much as they used to. And there's record savings. I mean, if you have to rely on that, you got a problem because it's going to change. It's going to evaporate. It's not sustainable. But what you're talking about is completely sustainable and it doesn't rely on external and it doesn't even really care. Is that true? It is because when you have that people first culture, your employees first culture, your customer first culture, like I say this all the time, our community will make sure we survive, right? Our community will make sure that we thrive. If you just continue to take care of them, give them reasons to come back, be better than anybody else in all that you do, make it fast, make it easy. All that stuff that we talk about, that's great. I love it because that's part of it. But you can't do that. Like this market is, look at what it's done just in the last six months, David. It's, I mean, there's people dropping left and right who mm -hmm. thought they had it figured out, yep. right? It's because they have to inspire change in their stores now because who you were a year ago is not going to work this year. So if you need to inspire change, your people are the ones I, as one, cannot go down there and demand change. I have 250 employees. I can't affect one. So my vision is just one piece of a 250 piece puzzle. I need every one of those mm -hmm. people down there to be able to shift to look at with it. me. And if I, they don't shift with me, I'm going to die or I'm going to start to drown. And those, the, the, to not drown in this business means it'll start to cost profitability. And the cool part is when I think the good dealers, I think the good dealers do good things with their profits, 
right? They give back to the community. They reinvest in the community, reinvest in their dealership. They certainly reinvest in their people. A profitable dealership is such an important piece to the community, to the livelihoods, you know, and this is really cool. We've become the sixth biggest employer now in Forsyth County. That's wow. behind the massive hospital, Tyson Foods, some really big, we're the sixth biggest employer. Like we affect the community. Us being successful is so important, but we can't think what we did for the last three years was success. What we do the next three, that will determine if we're really good. And that is going to take some mind shifts. Mm-hmm. And I can't shift those minds if they're not bought in. And they're only bought in if I have equity with them, number one. And if I have a little bit of grace, you got to have some grace with your people. I think it's a big piece of culture. Let them make mistakes as long as they don't continue to make the same one. So I think if we take equity and we put grace and we pair them together, I think these next three years can be really good. I totally agree with you. And, you know, this has been validated. It's been verified. It's been proven. And yet the vast majority of dealerships Honestly, if you unpeel the onion, they can't lay claim to that. And it's not that the dealers don't care. They do care. It's not that managers don't care. They do care. But it's having a unified approach. So in other words, to your point, 250 people, 250 visions, they have to be unified at some point, somehow, some way, or you don't get that combustion. And so these other dealers, well, I'll go into dealers. I work with dealers. You hear about them also. Like what happened? Why did this dealer in this area, you know, achieve the level of success, but that store right across the street, right down the street, didn't not that they didn't care. It's not that they didn't put in the hours. They were open the same amount of hours, mm-hmm. but why didn't that happen? And oftentimes I, I mean, I would have to believe because I buy into what you're saying a hundred percent that they didn't have that uniformity and, and they didn't have one vision where everybody was pursuing that which was understood to be most important, which is that obsession for who we are, that obsession for coming through for somebody and knowing that if we do that internally, we don't need to worry about the client experience. It's going to pour over it. Why would it not? And we see that every day. If you see a dealership that is dealing, you said something earlier, with culture change. Hey, if I change something, if I want to change hours, if I want to change products, if I want to change approach, my people will go, oh man, that's going to be an undertaking, but all right, let's go. When you see an organization, if you're in an organization where you're t- going from one DMS to another, you're going from one you know, inventory management solution to another, and you've got pushback, you've got change culture, change management issues, you have a culture issue. You don't have a change management issue. You have a culture issue. Do you agree with that, Patrick? I do. I, you couldn't be more spot on. And I think that is the biggest part of culture and, and why culture is su- super important in today's world is because this business is rapidly changing. And I don't know the stats. Somebody said it at, at some conference I was at, but how the world has just sped up so much. So that requires so much change. And again, who we are today is not who we're going to be a year from now. And it's certainly who we are today. If we are still the same people we were two and three years ago, like there's a tidal wave coming for some that that they're just not ready for. And you got to be ready. And the only way to be ready is to have your battle team, your army mentally ready. And that they're not going to be ready for you if they don't love who, what they do who they do it for and who they do it with. If they can love those three things, David, listen, you can go take on anything in this world. But right now, right now, if you're not prepared, if you didn't take your profits over the last couple of years, right? And I think a lot of people got greedy and they stopped investing back because it was just piling on. The money just kept piling on. But really, you know, for anybody listening, how much did you really reinvest back into your people, back into your business? Or was at that time that you felt like this was my time to go glom it all? Because if you glommed it all and you didn't reinvest back, you're going to feel that two years from now. I know you are. And I think it's not too late, right? Because things are still pretty good. But like we see it, the storm's over there, right? And I, I love this because I used to do, when I was in Florida, I used to do a lot of offshore fishing. And we used to sit on a boat 
and we'd be out in the middle of the Gulf, David, and there's a storm over there. You could see it because you have all this technology and all these radars, right? And you see it. And I'm literally sitting in the boat watching lightning bolts come down over there. So, so you know what you do? You go that way. <laughs> you go that way. Like we have that in our business right now. We have the technology. We have the, the data. We have the information to not head towards the storm. You know, it's funny you say that. I, I'm such a data junkie. Uh, you know, I'm a operational junkie, culture junkie, but I'm so data centric. I have been for 35 years. And, you know, for 15 or 20 years before the pandemic, I was the seismologist looking at data. And I was watching this rather dramatic shift in terms of the attribution of profit where 100% of it used to come from operational income. Go, hey, this is a novel concept. We make money through our new used parts and service departments. And then one day, around the mid-90s, Mike Jackson famously came up with this new program. Hey, we're going to slice the margins, MSRP to invoice, from roughly 16 17% down to 65 What? Yeah, this whole internet thing is becoming a problem for us because dealers, customers are shopping over state lines, different markets, which is changing warranty, our ability to manage warranty. So we got an idea. We'll just eliminate the margin. So people will shop over state lines and they're going to get the same deal. Sounds good. But what it led to, unintended consequences, what it led to is a complete shift, dramatic shift in the way our business model works. So every year since then, you could see where the percentage of money in the net profit that came from operating income started going from this to this. Well, by 2013, Patrick, it was roughly a half a million in operating income, and the other 700,000 was from below the line. Manufacturer money, OEM incentives, blah, 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 dock fees. By 2016, it was down to 273 from operating income. 2018, for the first time ever, operating income went negative. Dealers still made a million three, but it was all below the line. So it was dock fees, and it was now the government subsidy program from your local manufacturer, which means we were reliant on that and beholden to that. And we just kind of moved away. We transitioned away from this operating income. And so... Today, as you say this, you talk about this sustainability. And oh, by the way, during the pandemic, I, I started tracking all this. And I created a report, you'll love this, called the Hurricane Report. You know why I called it the Hurricane Report? Because what I stated was, if anybody gets surprised by, a hur- by an earthquake, uh, you shouldn't feel bad. There are people that have been studying earthquakes for 40 years and they still have no idea when it's going to hit, where it's going to hit, how big it's going to hit or what the damage is. But if you get surprised, my friend, by a hurricane, you may need to be drug tested or aptitude tested because (laughs) we saw that thing two weeks ago. We know where it is. We know the speed. We know the trajectory. They literally can tell you it's going to hit roughly at 215 in Monroe, Louisiana, or wherever it's going to be. And it's going to be a category five. It's going to have 165 mile an hour sustained winds. Here's going to be the trajectory. Here's going to be the radius. And you brought up that, that, that anecdote about fishing, and you're exactly spot on because that's where we're going. The storm clouds started showing up 15, 18 months ago. Nobody noticed, Patrick. Nobody mm-hmm. noticed. The used car market started shifting in July of 2021. Nobody noticed the net profit started shifting in the third month of the chip shortage. Nobody noticed. We were all having a pretty good time. Mm-hmm. But now, everybody, maybe aside from Toyota, Lexus, Honda, and a few other great franchises who continue to subscribe to a one-two-few approach, those dealers are in a different space. December 23, I called it the 24th month of 2022 for those franchises. They're still having a party. Everybody else, Patrick, man, Audi's got a hundred day supply. Mercedes has got a 90 day supply. Dodge and Chrysler, 200 day supply. And as we see that shift, what's happening to profitability is collapsing. Sales associate income collapsing. But yet there are people out there 
There are the Beaver Toyotas that are out there. There's the Aleritas that are out there that go, uh -uh, and nothing changed. Why? You know what the common thread is? Relationships, commitment to people, obsession over their people, and doing the right thing from a culture standpoint. Mm. So as you move forward in 2024, question, are you going to NADA? I am. Okay. So here's a really important question for everybody. And I want to hear your thoughts. I don't want to know why you're going to NADA. What I want to know is based on what you've been referring to and based on everything you've experienced, there's going to be a lot of dealers walking up and down those carpeted aisles searching for some just add water solution that's going to fix everything, make everything better, sell more cars, generate more advertising leads, and so forth. From your perspective, seeing what you've seen and knowing what you know, what should dealers be focused on at NADA and as they move forward in 2024? If they don't want to just survive and they want to thrive through the next couple of years, if I, and what I'm going to do is a couple of things, retention of our consumers, right? If you, there's a lot of great tools out there that can help you retain your customers, right? If you really want to thrive, you've got to learn how to keep the ones you already have because we all spend so much money trying to get new ones if we just focus on the ones we already have. And that retention is, and, and we're super proud of our retention. We're one of the highest in Southeast Toyota and, and nationally as well. But if you just do the right thing over and over again for your consumer and you just don't, tr you, you always take the high road with the consumer, you retain them. So if I was walking down NADA, I would be finding the tools that help me do that because there are a ton of great technologies out there that can help you make it easier for your people to do their job, which makes it easier for the consumer to do business with you. That makes it easier for everybody to just keep working well together. That's that, that would be my number one focus right now. If you want to thrive over the next couple of years, we did a really good job of selling a ton of cars and servicing a bunch of cars. Now, as it gets hard, how do we keep those people? Because we all know if they're retained that wall of trust, right? We work so hard. I say it like this, the wall of trust is this big when you first meet them and as through the experience, it starts to go down mm -hmm. and the further it goes down, the, the reality is the more profitable it can be because you're not having to earn the business up here. So if we can get more of the people down here, we can still run a profitable business because we don't have to be who we were post uh, pre COVID. Yeah. The, what a great visual you just painted. You know, the way I see it in my brain is, boy, if I have that wall built so high, so strong, there is no customer that's going to want to take on hiking over that wall. You know why? Because based on what you said, why would I put in that amount of effort to hike over a wall when it's pretty good over here and it's not likely to be as good over there? But if that wall of trust falls to a point where I literally could just step over it to go check it out, I find it's the same thing with associates. You know, associates are going to get poached. They're going to get calls. They're going to, you know, my associates got people tried to poach them. Of course they did. Look at what the results were. These guys were turning in, but they didn't leave. And it wasn't because of the money, Patrick. You talked about finance being the lowest. It's true. During that time, compared to the Ford store, the Chevy store, the Toyota store, everybody on Stevens Creek Boulevard, which was one of the biggest car streets in the country, we had the average, you had the lowest average compensated managers, for example. That's not why they stayed. People take a job, Marcus Buckingham, people take a job for money. They don't, they will not stay for money. They won't. Right. They'll stay for culture. And something else he learned, they go to work for a company, but they quit their manager. Is that an issue in the car business? Patrick? It is. It's a massive one. And I'm going to show you, and, and this is something I'm extremely proud of. I believe that your pay plans should align with the philosophy of the dealership, right? And so this store was a brand new open point six years ago. And one of the things that we wanted to do That's was- mind-boggling to me, by the way. We, we needed to grow our database, right? So we were attacking the market. So our pay plan is aligned with the philosophy. Our guys are paid off of flats on, on, on the vehicles they sold. Through COVID, 
how many people when all these stores were having eight, 10, $12,000 front end deals, paying out 25, 35, whatever the pay plans are, percent commission, I'm sitting here with flats where my guys are making a mask six, 700 bucks a car. I lost zero salespeople, zero salespeople to another dealership because of pay plan where they said, well, I can go make, you know, four or 5,000 a car over here, zero. Not one person left me to say, I am so sorry, but I can go over there, sell 10 cars and make what I, it, I'm making right here, selling 25, not one. And I think that's a big piece of, it starts with the culture side of it, right? But it also understands like, you, you have to be good every day. You have to be good leadership every single day because on an instant, the game can change and you can lose everybody. And that's, I think, when I look at that, when you said that just clicked in my head, because we didn't even battle that. It wasn't even a battle. We weren't even having those conversations like, well, I can go down there and make 2,500 bucks on one car deal. Why would I stay? And when you go back to talking about culture, like, I I think people need to pay attention to what that's going to look like over this next couple of years. It's interesting, again, that you say that because, again, being a data junkie, and I'm looking at personnel expense other salaries and wages, clerical, salespeople, F&I. And when you look at the dealerships across the country, there are many where the sales uh, compensation percentage is essentially the same. Where that has occurred, that means your people are making a lot less. You're making right. less, they're making a lot less. Now, when your store goes from making 6 million to 5 million or 6 million to 4 million, not fun, you, you lose a couple million, but 4 million is not terrible, right? But when a employee goes from making 10 grand to four, that's a problem. And there's many of those salespeople that, you know, when you start taking water on the boat, they're looking to the captain, right? They're not looking at the other people seated in the boat. Like, what do we do? They're looking for help with, how do I navigate through this? If they have development, if they have training, if that store to your point is investing, oh, you want retention? You can't retain customers unless you retain associates. Can't do mm-hmm. it. Your associates can't improve and get better if they're not there anymore. They have to be there to get better. So, you know, I love what you said in terms of NADA because if it was me knowing the power of and the importance of that foundation that you're showing. And for anybody listening, I mean, just wrap your mind around this, please. This is one of the most successful stores, not just in Southeast Toyota, in the Southeast, right? Or in the Eastern US, I mean, pick a geography. And, you know, this is one of the most successful stores out there by all measure. And they're a whopping six years old. Six years ago, they had zero customers. They didn't have anybody to retain. And think about this. You probably have to be at least three or four years older before you could even say, God, we have somebody to retain from a sales perspective. But that mindset, that approach, and that dedication to culture, I mean, is a, it, your success is such a tribute to all of those things. And so as somebody's going to NADA, while well, I'm betting that the booths that are going to be the busiest, no, not the ones with the bars and the free cocktails at the end of the day, I think it's going to be the one like we see year after year. It's going to be some new tech solution. It's going to say AI after whatever it is, something AI, because we're hearing that ad nauseum, or it's going to be something in marketing and leads because somebody's thinking, ah, if I just get more leads, we're going to sell more cars. It's simply not true. And as Patrick is saying, what if you play the long game? What if, you know, instead of the just add water approach or or the quick fix, you go out and seek out the products, the searches, the solutions and the technologies that will allow your folks to do a better job from a workflow perspective, for example, that will reduce friction. You want to reduce friction in the client experience? You must reduce friction in the associate experience. And what if you did that and invested in those things or invested in training, high-level training for your folks so it allowed them to become better? So you combine that ability to become better from a skill perspective and you continue to feed them like Patrick's talking about in terms of pouring into them on the personal side 
and the career side. And something tells me you have a shot at replicating the magic that we've all seen with Beaver Toyota. Patrick, so I kind of feel bad for this, but people are going to want to know. On the used car side, there's been a lot of volatility, a lot more so in the back half of 2023. As you go into 2024, I'm not going to get into the weeds on your procurement strategies and all those things. I'm not going to go after the Colonel's 13 secret spices and his chicken. I don't want to know that. But what I'm curious about is as you have navigated through Q3, Q4 last year, going into this year, expected to be more volatile yet. Are you shifting at all in terms of your approach, your processes, your methodologies, or are you more staying the course and really relying on execution and discipline to keeping an ideal inventory rather than changing things up? No, I think, I think it's a little bit of both. I think, I do think these turbulent used car waters, there's actually no black or white. There's a lot of gray. And I think the ones who manage in the gray right now are the ones who are going to really do well. What I say that is, so just a little bit of advice. And Mr. Beaver always says this, the greatest, take out the trash, meaning if it's stinking up the place, take it out. Like, I think a lot of people are holding on to, to like, take out your trash and start fresh. I think one of the things that we did well was we cleaned our inventory. We made sure we went into 2024 spotless. And now when a lot of people are still holding on to some of their problems and not just inventory, but processes and, and just take out the trash, get the stinky stuff out of the house and go start fresh. Now's a good time to do that because you know, the reality is the market is doing this like a, a week ago, everybody said the market was crashing again, but now, you know, you look at it today and I think, I think you have to be consistent. You have to decide who you want to be and then you have to stay the course you got to stay the course because number one, most people are not going to handle that. Well, buy, don't buy, buy, don't buy, you know, you know, you got to stay consistent. You got to have cars that people want and you got to be doing it every day, 24 hours a day. You said something earlier, you know, in terms of culture again, and being able to day in and day out, you know, pour into these people that work with you and for you and to come through for them week in and week out. And as you're sitting, saying, telling us about your belief, your perspective on used cars, I kind of feel like putting those two together because if you think about it in terms of a, a sports team, you had said, hey, if you do what you did two years ago, chances are you're probably going to get less performance, right? Because the competition's getting smarter, the game has changed, players change, and you just can't keep running the same play month in, month out, year in, year out. But yet those organizations, you know, whether it's the New England Patriots or whether it was the Golden State Warriors, you know, for their most recent run, a quote unquote dynasty run, or, or any other team out there, whether it's a business, whether it's an Apple or whether it's a Tesla, the culture didn't change. The methodologies may but they understand it's important to keep the people there. It's important to keep that championship culture, that winning culture there. But if we have to make shifts and changes and reinvent and rethink, that's where our focus needs to be. Am I hearing you correctly? Yeah, you are. And when I say you, you got to take the things you're doing well and you got to maintain and be consistent. But the things that are changing from two years ago is, what are your unique selling propositions in your store? Is it easier to do business with you today than it was two years ago, right? Those are the things. How easy is it to do? But those are the things that people need to be focusing on today and a year from now and a year after that. I think that's what change is. And, you know, on the service side, you, you always got to one's always, how do you grow service, right? You, you always add, you add technicians, right? And then once you add technicians, then you got to add advisors. Once you add enough advisors, then you add more technicians, right? And that's how it goes. It's the same thing in the, on the sales side. What are you chasing? Okay. To, this is how we did it today. That was good. And we made it easier. Okay. How do we make it better? And then how do you make it better? And how do you make it better? And it, typically that's through better guest experience, unique selling propositions in your dealership. 
better guest experience, guest experience defined, right? Because I hear this all the time. We have the best guest experience. Cool. And then when you ask them, what do you do? They all say the same thing. We we're very transparent. Cool. Define transparency. Yeah. But if you go and try to buy a car there, it doesn't feel transparent. Like, how do you make it better for people to do business with you? Is it easy? Is it really easy? Is it easy to get numbers? Or what's that look like? Is it easy to get a trade value? What does that look like? What happens when a customer asks a salesperson, what is your interest rate? What does that experience look like? <laughs> like truly, if you went through your own experience, is it easy? Two years ago, it was fun. You actually didn't have to be good. If you had the car you won. Fun for you, not for the customer. It, correct. Brutal for the customer. Oh, I correct. said 2023 was going to be the revenge of the customer. <laughs> and it is right. And for dealerships that aren't ready for it, they're getting a beat down. But to your point, I actually, it excites me. The fact of the, the, the dealers who actually gave a crap about the customers through the last couple of years are really going to be the ones that shine. They're going to be the benefactors yeah. because they held a good reputation. The community, I know people are, oh, the, the, the customers will forget and they'll move on. I don't, I, I think in normal times, yes, what we went through was not normal. So what you think they thought, it, it, it just might not be. So who are you being? Yeah, so it's so important to have the philosophy of disrupting yourself, right? Because what you're saying is, hey, that's great. We This is the bar we hit two years ago on client experience. But if that hasn't shifted in the last two years, the expectation of customers has. That bar's gone up in their mind for two years in a row. Your competitors, they probably got better, at least some of them. And so the only logical outcome is that you're going to not have as much fun. You're not going to be as successful. You're not going to sell as many cars. So that concept of disrupting yourself, you layer that on top of this, uh, that this foundation of rock solid, immovable culture. And you layer on top of that, this dedication to reinvest some of those profits in your people. Add to that now, this commitment to disrupt yourself, to Figure out how to disrupt yourself before the competition figures out how to do that. And all these things, folks, you start to layer things together, this true commitment and obsession with retention and understanding retention again, not to just add water. How do I do retention? Well, I don't know. That's a 12-step process and you have to be committed over day in, day out, week in, week out. And at some point, you're going to see some huge benefit to it, which you guys certainly have. You said something super telling and interesting early on. The city of coming will make certain that we're going to be just fine. The city of coming will take care of us because we've always taken care of our city, our community. And that's one of the things that's a superpower, I think, of an individual dealership or dealership group where the publics have a tougher time with that. So while you can have the 800-pound gorilla move in your neighborhood and you think, oh my God, these are multi-billion dollar companies, they have to live up to your bar as long as you've set the bar. Right, Patrick? Well, I'm hoping we, we continue to be on the innovative side of setting that bar of being a good dealer for the community. For the entire, I want the entire industry to do well. I want the entire industry to go. I want people to look at car dealerships as a really good place to go. It's a great experience. I like them. They're my friends. They're my neighbors. Like I, I'm at the same grocery store with these people. Like I believe if we do a better job as an industry, we'll be here for a very long time. And I think that's a massive challenge because to your point, you know, uh, I challenge all the public companies, like really you guys are the billion dollar gorillas. What are you actually doing to make sure that these communities love the dealerships that you have? I don't see it out of a lot of the publics. I just don't. And I think as many stores as they have, especially in metro markets, they can make a massive impact if they just cared a little bit more. Don't just say it. Don't just say it. Do something about it. I think it'd be good for our industry, David. I had somebody, I agree with you, Patrick. I had a very wise person. His name was Father Bob Spitzer. I believe he had six or seven advanced degrees, masters and PhDs. Smartest guy I've ever met. And probably his greatest level of brilliance was being able to take incredibly complex subjects and 
when he would share it with me or share it with anybody, he just simplified it. It just like hits you in the forehead. And one of the things he, I remember from years ago, he talked about, I believe it was Plato, talking about acts of commission versus acts of omission, right? Where acts of commission were, or were willful, they're intentional, whether good or bad, they're willful and they're intentional, they're planned, they're premeditated. Acts of omission are not, right? It's just like, hey, I wasn't, didn't intend to hurt you, I just wasn't thinking about you. Mm-hmm. Well, the outcome out of the bottom of that funnel is the same, curiously or not. So when you talk about publics, not like they don't care, I think genuinely at the highest level of those organizations, I'm positive they care. It's something they talk about, they think about. But yet, even though it may be an act of omission, they weren't willfully, maliciously not wanting to care about the community. From the community's perspective, you either made an impact or you didn't. Isn't that true? That's so true. And I, you know, you're saying those public companies that we're talking about, they have the same good people we do in our dealership. They do. The same. I've hired some amazing people and they've hired some amazing people. they may people. not be empowered to take the same action. They don't understand what that means because it's never really been a thing. You know, just, you know, being good to the community is more than just writing a check to a charity. It just is. And I know they do that. They do that at a massive scale with zillions of dollars. I think it's really good. But being good to the community is actually being good people making good decisions, doing the right thing, even when, even if it might cost you a little bit, caring about the perception of the consumer that's in your community. I think it's all part of that. It's this whole big inner circle of these things that you have to do. And I think sometimes it just gets lost in translation because I agree with you. Some of the people who run the public, I get it. But from here to here, what's that look like in the middle? Something's lost in translation. As we head up towards the wrapping up our conversation, a couple of things just for context. For those that are not familiar, so coming Georgia, about 45 minutes outside of Atlanta, mm-hmm. population of coming itself, seven, 8,000 people. Seven, 8,000 in coming. Giant yeah. metropolis, the county, quarter of a million people, which is still very small compared to most AOR, most dealership markets. The, in terms of in your market, how many Toyota stores are in your market? In that within an hour, hour and a half. There's 17 in the Atlanta DMA. So you're competing with 16 Toyota stores. Are you competing with CarMax or any Publix? Yeah, of course. There, I'm, I've got a, a public Toyota dealership that's 10 miles down the same street as we are on. Okay. So you deal with the Publix. Is there a CarMax? <laughs> as many as you can count. <laughs> <laughs> so you're dealing with CarMax. You're, de- you're dealing with those you can't, competitors as you can see, those you can't, a.k.a. Uh, Carvana. You've got the Publix. You've got just a mere 16 Toyota competitors. And yet, you are winning and winning consistently in a big way. And well, we're proud to say, David, that in 2023, we once again were the number one franchise dealer in the entire state. And that's of new and used car volume combined. There's not another franchise dealer that sold more cars than us in the state of Georgia. Think, so um, think about that, everybody. And this is six years in. This is you. In fact, it reminds me of Ali Rita hired a gentleman named Carlos. He wanted to hire a Hispanic speaking person. He went to the dealer and said, ah, I don't know if we need that. We have Hispanic speaking. Ali says, yeah, but it's not really working. I'll manage them. Hey, and don't worry. They won't take one up. They won't take one phone call. They won't take one internet lead. His name's Carlos. He had an immense background in automotive. No, he didn't. He worked for a pool maintenance company. And two years in, the guy sold 62 cars. The guy sells 40 to 50 cars consistently. We have salespeople that have been in the same store, different stores for 10 or 15 years that are still selling eight or 10 cars a month. We have dealerships in the same market, 5, 10, 15, 20 years that have seen little or no growth, maybe tiny incremental growth, but really no growth. And here you have an organization that is six six years old, six, with all of that competition, the 800-pound gorillas, the, the best of the best, great Toyota stores everywhere, and nobody in the entire state of Georgia, not the county, the whole state of Georgia, nobody sells more cars. It's something to give great consideration to as you move into NADA and you wander those aisles. And hopefully what rings in your ear is Patrick Abad saying, 
time I reinvest in my people. It's time to create an epic and a legendary cost so that we can have not just a great 2024, but we could create a legacy that renders a sustainable, highly profitable organization that the associates and the community and the clients can count on for years to come. Patrick, as we get ready to wrap up, I do have a couple of, I'll call them the speed round questions. Do you mind? Let's do it. (laughs) What was the first car you ever owned? First car I ever owned was a, what, what year was it? It was a, that I bought myself was a 1998 Saturn. Wow. Wow. You've always been innovative. (laughs) (laughs) Did you do it for the bagels and free donuts? I did it because my, my grandmother was bought into Saturns more than any. She, that's all she ever owned since they came out. Wow. And yeah, it's a 97. Yeah. 97 Saturn. Okay. What's, and then how long have you been in the business altogether? I started in 1998. Okay. So 26 years. Finish this sentence if you'd be so kind. I love the car business because. I love the car business because it allows me to be the person that I want to be in life. Many people in this business or other businesses might ask, you know, why is what I do important? You know, what impact am I making on the world? And what I just heard from you is you could be in any industry, especially in this one, and you could have a profound impact. You could be exactly who you want to be. By the way, don't need a college degree. By the way, don't need a high school degree. It's an industry like no other, in my opinion. Patrick, if you have a day off, a rare day off, you jump in a car, just you. Maybe it's just you and you, it is you and your dear wife, your family. The sun's out. Windows are down. Just a great day to drive. What's on the radio? What's your go-to song? I am a big fan of Christian music. I love that some of the newest Christian music out. I think it's just, I just I love it going in my ears and out. What genre is it predominantly? Country? Oh. No, Christian always. Yeah. So is it Christian contemporary or Christian country? Christian contemporary. Christian yep. contemporary. Okay, great. And obviously, I know the answer to this question. You know, I'm, I have no doubt that regardless of all the accomplishments that you've had, the achievements that your team has done, I'm guessing the favorite title you've ever had in your life is Dad, right? You know it. Right. And, you know, just curious, I mean, what's your favorite thing about being a dad? Watching when my children do amazing things for other humans. I, I see it in my five-year-old all the way up to my 21 year old. Those are the proud moments that, that you feel like, I think as our job, our number as parents, our number one responsibility is to create good humans, Mm. not smart ones. That's not my job. I can't make them smart. I can, I guess maybe I don't look at it like that. I think our job is to create good humans. And I try to, I try to instill that in them. I try to let them see what that is taking care of others, doing for others, because I do think that is what our world needs. Our, need, our world needs more people so supporting, loving, and helping each other. And I think the proud moments come when, when I watch them do that. I love that. I used to tell my, my older kids, I said, you know, I want you to be great at school. I do. I would love for you to do your best. I'm not asking you to be the best. Just do your best. But make no mistake, I said, if I had to choose between you being solid A students and solid A human beings that made a contribution to this world, make no mistake, I want the A human beings. And I'm very grateful. I have just spectacularly kind, caring, empathetic, compassionate people that truly want to make a difference and it's my hope that I get to do that again and watch these, these little guys grow. So I thank you for sharing everything on the business side and especially for sharing some of that really, truly special insight regarding you personally and what's important being a father. Thank you for taking the time, Patrick. This has been a, an incredibly special conversation for me personally. I have no doubt that there's not one, two, three, four, there's probably a dozen things or more that people listening will be able to pick up, write down, and leverage. Take, you know, just 
put into practice to not just allow their business to get better, but to get their life better, help them, their life be better. And I think that's extraordinary. So knowing that what means the most to you is pouring into people, coming through for people, I just have no doubt you just did that again. So thank you for that. It's been my honor, David, as always. You know, you. I look up to you. I love, I love what you do. I love what you're about. And you're a special human being. So thank you for uh, having me. Thank you. That's very kind. For everybody listening, thank you. Genuinely, thank you for investing your time. I have no doubt that this episode is going to mean a lot. And please take the time to share it with somebody who you know could benefit from what Patrick shared personally and professionally. It's uplifting, it's important, and it's impactful. So thank you for doing that. Please feel free to also leave a comment, good, bad, or ugly. I read them all and I love them all. And if you would be so kind, take the time to download this episode and subscribe. If you go to davidspizak.com, you will be able to access Patrick's episode as well as uh, information on how to contact Patrick through LinkedIn, for example, or social networks. Maybe a little bit about Beaver Toyota and also the 12 questions that I mentioned earlier from that really great series of books written by Marcus Buckingham. Till next time, thank you so much. And uh, this has been the David Spizak Show. See you soon. Listening to the David Spizak Show. If you haven't yet, please click the subscribe button and leave a rating wherever you're listening right now. I look forward to having you back in the room where it happens.